battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Folks, you are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. We've got some good stuff for you uh, talking about Elon Musk some more. Uh, got some business advice from uh, Mazda. Talking about uh, labor in Norway. Looking forward to that. I think yeah. that's going to be a good conversation. I am interested. Yeah. Um, talking some more about the NLRB. That's some crazy stuff going on there. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk about Twitter. Um, and the situation there seems to be getting worse for... <laughs> For its workers, um, and for and for people who care about free speech, which I've heard is which, um, quite a lot of Republicans. And uh, and I had previously thought it was Elon Musk, but he seems to be proving me wrong. Uh, so, like I said, the situation at Twitter seems to be getting worse, but it is doing one thing for us, and it's showing us the limits of free speech for billionaires who are touting it. That limit is. When they don't like it. (laughs) They are for free speech until they don't like it. As evidence for this, let's take a look at some public criticism that Elon got on Twitter. Alright, so here is a tweet from an Eric Fraunhofer. Quoting Elon, who said, By the way, I'd like to apologize for Twitter being super slow in many countries. App is doing greater than a thousand poorly batched RPCs just to render a home timeline. Okay, look. I have no idea what he just said. Nah. Not a a clue. Not a clue. Okay? Respect to those who do. uh, You don't even have to tell me what it is. Yep. Doesn't matter. Eric says, I have spent approximately six years working on Twitter for Android and can say this is wrong. Okay, now look, uh, something that I want to point out about this criticism is even though what Elon said is indecipherable to me, you know, so I don't, look, maybe this employee is full of it. That could be a possibility. But that tweet that Eric tweeted, quoting Elon, was not disrespectful. It was just a disagreement. Right? Let's read the tweet again. Is it disrespectful or is it just disagreement? Quote, all this tweet says, I have spent six years working on Twitter for Android and can say this is wrong. Not a disagreement. He doesn't even say like, you know, he's not even doing the the Twitter dunking like, hey, dumbass, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. All he says is, look, I've been working on this for six years. That's not correct. Maybe he's full of it, maybe he's not, but the tweet was not disrespectful is what I'm trying to say. It was just a disagreement, and I think, I think it's reasonable that if you publicly criticize somebody's work product or pose a question about their work or make a statement about their work, that person 
should be able to publicly defend themselves. That person should be able to respond in the same manner that the comment was made, even if that criticism comes from their boss, even if that statement came from their boss. You should be able to respond to things that are made in, respond to statements that are made in public, in public. Should be able to respond in public to statements made in public, even if it comes from your boss. Why? Because I don't reckon that your boss is better than you. I don't reckon that your boss deserves some special respect, that we ought to have to treat our bosses with kid gloves, right? I don't reckon we should have to do that. I reckon we're all adults, and we should all be able to treat each other like adults. And I think that Eric was being perfectly fine disagreeing without being disagreeable. That's not what Elon Musk thought, though, uh, because here somebody tweeted, quote, with this kind of attitude, you probably don't want this guy on your team. And Elon said he's fired. Also, who is this guy? Langdon? Who is this guy acting like a snitch? Seriously. Yeah. Um, crying to the boss. Right. Uh, um, excuse me, sir. One of your employees has a nasty attitude. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Seriously. Seriously. It's insane. I mean, it's they, just... They, he fired the guy. Yeah. That's not what Elon thinks. I think that objectively this tweet is a disagreement without being disagreeable. It's a disagreement without being disrespectful. But Elon thinks that any public disagreement, any public debate with him, if you are under him and his hierarchy, is... is that's bad. You can't do that. You can't have a public conversation with Elon mm. as his employee. He can't have you usurping his authority. Well, and he certainly is not the only boss with this attitude. Of course and that's not. one of the issues is, is how many employers have that same attitude. Because certainly uh, many of the employers I've worked for mm -hmm. had the exact same attitude. Yeah. And it's like, don't you dare... If you're going to disagree, you really shouldn't. But don't you dare do it publicly. Absolutely. And now, so, okay, look. Maybe, maybe you said, maybe you say that was warranted because you can't respond to your betters in public. Maybe you agree with Elon here that you just, you just shouldn't be able to have a conversation with somebody higher up in you in the food chain in public. Because that's, because think about the chains of command or whatever, right? Maybe that's what you think. But maybe you say criticism and disagreement and debate is fine, but if you have a criticism or a debate or a disagreement with somebody higher up, in, uh, higher up than you in the food chain, you have to make sure it's internal. You gotta make sure that, internal, that, that conversations about work are done internally. You can't go publicly criticizing or, dis or even disagreeing with your boss. You just can't do that. That's, that's disrespectful. Right, raise your hand if you've heard that shit yeah. before. Well, maybe you say that, but Elon Musk doesn't because he also fired employees that had critical messages of him in the company Slack. This from Casey Newton on Twitter. Employees who have criticized Elon Musk in Twitter's Slack channels were fired overnight via email. Quote, we regret to inform you that your employment is terminated immediately. Your recent behavior has violated company policy. And apparently company policy at Twitter now is that you can't criticize Elon 
publicly or privately, internally or externally. You just can't criticize the God King Elon. This is the free speech warrior, right? This is the guy who we are being told is going to return free speech to Twitter, to, to the United States. He's going to be a, he's going to be a warrior for people. And he can't even handle internal criticism. He can't even handle his employees disagreeing with him. Amazingly, a right-wing radio host in Tennessee defended this. Defended this, implying that he too would be fired if he dared criticize his bosses. And that this is an okay arrangement. It's okay and it's good and it's fine for you just simply not to be able to criticize your bosses. You shouldn't be able to. You shouldn't even. We, in fact, in fact, we should have a mechanism where we can look into your mind and make sure that you're not thinking critical thoughts about your employer. We need to make sure that you're You pure. joke, but it's probably coming. Yeah. Zuckerberg or Bezos one is probably working on it as we speak. We need to make sure that your obedience to Big Brother is total and complete and pure. So as soon as we can, we're going to figure out a way to drill into that little mind of yours and make sure that there aren't any, uh, you're not doing any wrong thing. Otherwise, we're going to fire you. And these are the same folks. These are the same folks. The folks that are defending Elon here, defending Elon for, again, firing somebody for just disagreeing with him internally, both internally and externally. The same folks that are doing that, that are defending Elon for this, are the same people that point and laugh at SJW types for conformity and political correctness. They're the same people that cry about censorship. And what censorship means to them, apparently, is just not being able to say the N-word on Twitter. Right. Or not being able to spread conspiracy theories on Facebook. That's what censorship is. But it's... So, you have to live in a world where you can spread bigotry and conspiracy theories on Facebook and Twitter... That's important for free speech, but it's not important for free speech for you to be able to disagree with your boss without worrying about homelessness. <laughs> I mean, seriously, think about which one, which one of those situations is going to be more operative for working people in this country. Which one of these situations are you going to run into as a working person more often? Are you more often going to need to be in a scenario where you can disagree with and criticize your boss and not worry that you're going to be out on the street because you lost your job and your income? Are you going to be more likely to be in this situation? Or are you going to be more likely to be in a situation where you just have a real big itch to spread bigotry and conspiracy theories on Facebook and Twitter? And then, and then, which one is more consequential? Which one is more consequential, right? Let's say that maybe, that maybe you do want to spread bigotry on Facebook more often than you want to disagree with your boss. Okay, but which one is more consequential for you as a working person? If you're not able to post on Facebook, life goes on. You go back to work the next day, you get your paycheck, you come home. Life goes on. Maybe you get a rumble or, or you get a gab or something, right? Maybe you get one of these alternate, alternative right-wing social media things. 
If you lose your job, that's so much more consequential. And the idea that these people pretend not to understand that when it comes to free speech, when it comes to the free speech conversation, it is obviously, obviously so much more consequential for working people whether or not their job is in jeopardy. Right. And people, and these people like this right-wing radio host in Tennessee, people like Elon Musk, they pretend, because of course they know it. If they thought about it for, so I don't know, maybe they're just not thinking about it. Elon knows it. Maybe Matt Murphy just doesn't think about it. Maybe well, and for him, posting is like, kind of is his job. Right. So, you know, maybe maybe there's some issues there with the number of the people who drive this narrative and how dependent they are on these social media platforms for their clicks and their ad revenue and all mm-hmm. that garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's so, so wild. I mean, and he says, guess what would happen if I criticized our Cumulus CEO in the same manner on our 100,000 radio station uh, in Nashville? Just go ahead and guess. Like, could you imagine, like, could you imagine being such, like, such a spineless weasel? Like, Oh, I could never criticize my boss on the radio, and that's good, and I'm defending that, and I'm defending my boss's authority to fire me because I disagree with him. It's a fetish for hierarchy. Oh, my gosh, dude. Um, there what was a, a loser. There was a quote I saw this week that was going around that I think is really appropriate here, which is it's by someone named Wendy Jade who said, an environment that is not safe to disagree in is not an environment focused on growth. It's an environment focused Mm -hmm. on control. Obviously. And I think that really uh, applies here at Twitter, and it applies in workplace after workplace across this country where we spend so much of our time, so much of our waking time at work under the hierarchy of bosses. Um, And so that that is a free speech issue that we encounter day after day. We we have the First Amendment and, you know, how dare anyone, you know, insult the First Amendment, your freedom of speech. But we just sort of accept that for, you know, eight to 10 to 12 hours a day, you don't actually have those rights. Right. You, you are reporting to a monarchy. Yeah. It's a dictatorship at work. You don't have any freedoms there except for what the boss gives you. It's, you know, it's not it's not acceptable in our political system to have that sort of attitude, though it's becoming increasingly more so. Um, But, you know, like the average person isn't going to say, yeah, I'd like to live under a king or a dictator who can who will tell me when I'm allowed to have any free speech. Right. We got a text infinite content here. Have you ever seen a company collapse as quickly as the Twitter debacle? Even vulture capitalists haven't imploded companies so fast. Right. We'll see if the company actually ends up imploding, but certainly a lot of drama and a lot of uh, mask dropping. Um, yeah, I liked the uh, the joke going around about can he buy Fox News next? Like, right, right. what else can he <clears throat> buy and just totally screw up? Um, yeah. Ron says, let's have more autocratic billionaires so we can run businesses more logically. Right. 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 Of, oh, course, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, who is out here snitching to the boss? Apparently a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of uh, weirdos on Twitter. Strom says, what can you say about a man Sam Harris and John Rogan fawn over? Indeed. William yeah. says, bootlickers. Yep, that's <laughs> right. Uh, William says, billionaires should not exist. It's that simple. 
Uh, absolutely infinite content with a $5 super chat says, I'm seeing a lot of snitching and Elon wasting time looking for criticism instead of learning how the sausage is made at Twitter. Stop snitching. Obviously. Obviously. William says, at will, employment is crazy. Join a, uh, join a union looking at you, tech workers. Indeed. You should not. I don't think right-wing weirdos like Matt Murphy, billionaire oligarchs like Elon Musk, and all of his defenders on Twitter, they reckon that it's good that you just can't criticize your boss. Uh, but not us. We think you should be able to criticize your boss. And maybe, maybe you should even be able to be disrespectful to him. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, no. You know what? And, and as long perhaps, as you do your job, perhaps, shouldn't matter. Perhaps you don't need a boss. Mm, crazy. I thought about crazy. that. Yeah. Hey, let's, uh, 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 is, Mateus isn't in the Zoom yet, is he? Uh, no, not yeah, yet, so, not yet. So, so let's, uh, let, let's talk about this Mazda stuff. Let's talk about this Mazda stuff. All so, right. you know, normally, uh, Facebook comment sections for AL.com are a total cesspool. <laughs> um, that's, that's probably putting it nice. And I'm not going to say that this one in particular was free of trash, uh, but there were definitely some bright spots. Uh, and it was in the post where AL.com highlighted poor old international multi-billion dollar company Mazda's complaints about not being able to retain a workforce. And as a result, are going to have to push some production timelines back. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Oh, Boo. no. Oh, no. Won't somebody think of the international multi-billion dollar companies? Mm. Now, even though Adam Keller is not a fancy CEO, you did have you had some advice for them, right, in the comments section? I did, yeah. And uh, this was all free of charge. No, no payments necessary. Um, I'm not a fancy CEO or HR director or attorney. But... If I had trouble retaining and recruiting employees, I might, I might, it's just me now. I'm, again, not a fancy boy, HR director, CEO. But if I knew my company could not recruit people, could not retain people, despite advertising all over the place, despite all the city government and all the media stroking you off whenever, okay, I'd take a good look at my pay my benefits, my scheduling, my working conditions, you know, the terms and conditions of employment, and maybe, while I'm at it, maybe, take a look at the management. And that advice, it's on the house. Gave that for free. I wasn't charging Mazda. I was just helping them, giving them some friendly suggestions on how they might could address their recruitment and retention problem. And, uh, Surprisingly, a lot of people seem seem to resonate. That seemed to resonate with folks. I don't think I got any trolls. I don't think I got any pushback. Just hundreds of people liked this little comment. Um, I try to stay out of the Facebook discussions, mm. and I'm much more offline than you are, Jacob. But it was a uh, day where I just happened to be stuck at the pharmacy for 30 minutes, waiting on a medication. Because they were short-staffed and busy, and there was insurance problems for half the people in line. And, I mean, we've all been there, right? Mm. So I just happened to pull up my phone to kill some time, and I see... First thing I see is Mazda complaining, nobody wants to work anymore. 
Nobody wants to work at Mazda. Mm. Poor, poor multi-billion dollar corporations. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the obscene schedules that they force upon people that impacts their family life. I'm sure all of their managers are high quality, Mm. nice, respectful, uh, competent individuals providing the best training and uh, human relations possible. I'm sure I, there's probably probably couldn't be an issue there. Right. But of course, I mean, that's why that's why they come to Alabama in the first place. Right. Yeah. You know, that's that's our home sweet home. Alabama is that we can provide to multinational corporations cheap, exploitable, non-union labor. And we can have a state government that will give them every bribe or I mean, oops, incentive subsidy and tax write-off that they can possibly give them with the quiet winking promise that there will be virtually no regulation when it comes to safety or the environment or any other aspects of regulation certainly when compared to more developed parts of the world and you know that's what companies like mazda and like hyundai have discovered is that alabama is a little bit closer than mexico and china and you can get away with some of the same stuff here yeah yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly why uh, places like like Hyundai and Mazda come down here. Uh, last stop on the way to Mexico, as folks say. Um, so that se- that did seem to be the common sentiment among our fellow Alabamians in this common section. Uh, so you know we don't agree on everything, but at least this time uh, it seems we were all able to agree to tell this corporate executive at Mazda, "Screw you, pay us." It's not that hard. It's not that hard, y'all. And yeah, I was proud to see uh, actual common sense being pretty common in the AO.com (laughs) section. Because as you said, I mean, it is normally the worst aspects of humanity on display for for all to see. So yeah, nice, pleasant surprise. Yep. Uh, Mateus in the Zoom now? No... I don't believe so. All right, no, not yet. Right, that's we, that's okay though. Yeah, we Maybe got a couple other way. stories. Yeah, we got a couple other stories. Let's talk about this. Um, th- this with the NLRB. You know, we've discussed the issue and and we mentioned it in last week in Southern Labor. Alluded to it. Um, and we've been discussing this issue with underfunding of the NLRB for some time. And it, it's a real issue. It's a real issue. Um, <clears throat> We're talking about huge cuts to staff over the past decade as fi- and as filings are increasing over the past couple of years. It's a really bad deal uh, for American workers that, unfortunately, it seems like many Democrats as well as Republicans are fine with. And this, uh, this underfunding issue is so bad that Jennifer Abruzzo said they are going to be forced to go into furlough territory oh, no. at the end of December. Oh, just what you want in the middle of mm-hmm. very contentious union drives is yes. furloughs of the NLRB. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very, Great. very big issue. Um, and and like I said, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo said that they're gonna have to do furloughs if they don't get an infusion of money soon. And and I mean, it needs to happen in this lame duck period before. Yeah. Uh, before the Republicans take over, because there's no way that House Republicans, I mean, House Republicans would probably be willing to blow up the country's economy before they are willing to, uh, you know, back our law enforcement officers at the NLRB. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. I mean, there's a lot that they would do before they did that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this probably is is one of the last chances to get something done. 
for what, two years. Yeah. What we did not anticipate, uh, however, was having to cover self-inflicted wounds on the agency by the purportedly pro-union and pro-worker head of the NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo. But that is, it seems like that's what's happened uh, as of last week. So currently, the union has a memorandum of understanding with the agency allowing for five days of telework per pay period. Telework is, of course, you know, being able to work from home, not in the office. The union states, the union representing NLRB employees, the NLRBU, the union states that this has been whittled down from a previous seven days, before that, eight days, and before that, ten days at the height of telework during the pandemic. You know, a lot of government agencies, uh, including mine, went to 100% telework for some time. Mine was probably about a year. We were 100% telework. Uh, They also noted that like so many other agencies across the government and companies across the private sector, they were told by their management that productivity did not decrease and they were lauded for their performance during the 100% telework period. Happened at my agency. And yet, Abruzzo told the union that she is going to allow the memorandum of understanding that they have for five days of telework per pay period to expire on the 23rd of December, which means that after Christmas, their work schedule will revert to the pre-COVID three days of telework per pay period. That means uh, four days in the office almost every week, only one day per week, basically, that they're able to telework. And that is not just bad for the workers there. Uh, not being able to have this perk. It's bad for workers everywhere because the union is reporting that longtime NLRB employees are taking other jobs and prospective employees are rejecting offers because other places in the government and in the private sector offer both higher salaries and more options for telework and uh, remote work. Which is, why would you not, right? Why would you not? Uh, if you've got somewhere that, you know, is going to be paying you more and you have more flexibility versus somebody somewhere that's going to pay you less and have less flex- flexibility. You can't be competitive that way. Just for competitiveness, you have to retain uh, this at least a moderate, if not aggressive, amount of telework. And uh, it... it Abruzzo seems ready to directly contribute to understaffing at the NLRB by allowing this memorandum of understanding expire. And it's just, it's indecipherable to me as to why she would be doing this. I don't, I'm I'm not under, uh, you know, I've been talking to people that work at the NLRB and they seem pretty flummoxed by it. They said that they still, after two years of bargaining with her, do not have a collective bargaining agreement. And wow. that if this uh, if this MOU expires, that their um, that their working conditions will actually be worse than it was under union busting Peter Robb when he was general counsel of the NLRB. So I mean, I really I don't know what to say about that. Uh, that's really disheartening to hear. Um, 
And I, I, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the union going public with this, I know that allies across the labor movement are rallying behind their, uh, you know, their complaints and saying that the NLRB, you know, needs to uh, do what its workers are asking um, because, you know, maintaining competitiveness for these positions is important for obviously these NLRB workers, but for us as well, because the NLRB workers are the people that we depend on to adjudicate labor law in this country. Right. It's it, it, it's really uh, perplexing. I, I can't I can't really make heads or tails of it, um, but but wanted to update y'all on that. Mm, mm. And just so you know, Mateus is in the uh, Zoom. Great. Great. So let's go ahead and talk to him then. So, yeah, Mateus Yastal Hammer is a reporter on foreign affairs for the Norwegian newspaper Klaus Kampen. And our next guest, Mateus, <laughs> thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Yeah. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do just want to say that uh, the name of that newspaper is very cool. Not only does it sound cool in Norwegian, but it means class struggle in English. So uh, cool it, cool both ways. <laughs> yeah. I guess we're, uh, you know, I guess we define ourselves as the kind of the daily newspaper of the left, I think is kind of our, mm -hmm. our slogan. It kind of came out of a period of very kind of radical politics in in the 70s and the 80s um, where there was a very active Marxist-Leninist movement um, mm -hmm. which originally founded the newspaper and then obviously it became harder to be a Marxist-Leninist and then after various kind of infights within newspaper it then became a broader newspaper for I guess readers generally maybe in on the left in the Norwegian political landscape which would be I mean, it's a parliamentary system, so you have a lot of kind of smaller parties, but that would be kind of the left of the Labour Party, the kind of mainstream progressive party, and then two, two or three parties to the to the left of that, which I guess we're looking at, you know, I guess maybe 20, 30 percent of, of voters. And I guess we're I think we're the third, third largest newspaper on on print run in Norway. And. When you came down here, and, and I met you because we were both at uh, the most recent Brookwood rally for, for the miners, but you told me that uh, that newspaper is funded uh, is funded by the state, is funded by tax dollars, and that's the way that all of the newspapers are funded there. Um, and, and so can you just talk to us about the way that the, uh, uh, the way that newspapers are are run there how they are uh how they're funded and and maybe some some more of that the the uh Ooh. some of the reporting that y'all do at Klaus Kampen. sure yeah i'm very happy to so in norway i mean <laughs> there's a lot of state spending going on to keep um to keep industries which are seen as desirable um and hard to fund within a country of five and a half million people going which means a very large chunk of every newspaper gets their budget from from the states. I mean, we're looking at, I think it's about, I guess, fifty million dollars, I believe, which is in state subsidies to newspapers for a country of five and five million people, um, which mm. does a lot to keep, I guess, the media landscape alive. You know, I think you would have one or two of the biggest newspapers alive, but I think it would be very hard for us, for example, to stay to stay alive without that funding um and i think it's very 
strictly, I mean, it's basically how many subscribers you have is how much funding you get. So there's a very, you know, kind of regulated system. But that's, I think, true of a lot of, I mean, both arts, literature, um, you know, I mean, I guess in this, you know, workplace where it's hard to get funding, you know, it's hard to make it as mm. as an artist, as a writer, as a, as a journalist. So having that state's funding, I think, means that you can have a kind of disproportionately large, um, you know, journalistic scene, you know, keeps newspapers right. such as such as ours um, alive. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I guess. Our yeah, paper... well, and I think well, I, I think that that is. The the importance of media, I think, is lost in this country, it, it, it seems to me. And like people just don't think that it's something that is is really worthwhile or they don't understand the importance of it and they certainly don't think that the state should be funding it because they think that if it's state funded that means it's going to be state directed and that uh you won't be able to get any actual reporting on on government corruption or or, or anything like that have you have have y'all run into any issues with you know disagreeing with maybe the official government line on something have, have there been any uh you know editorial issues that y'all have had with with being you know mainly government funded well i guess it's i mean the government is a chunk of our funding but i guess it's not exclusive but i think because mm -hmm. to be honest and i think here's to the credit of norwegian states given that it's very strictly regulated how this funding is given it's not you know, I think it's a fear that it could become politicized in the future, but it's certainly, um, I mean, we've run a lot of stories that are, you know, certainly not government friendly um, and, you know, have certainly been very strong critics of the previous right-wing government, but also now um, the kind of lack of support for, um, for struggling people, given the kind of energy costs, kind of skyrocketing energy costs in in Europe and in Norway, um, but I think because it's completely based on how many subscribers you have, there's unless they were to change the laws, there's kind of no no way of using that to um, to punish um, you know newspapers which are um, publishing things which are you know not not towing the government line, so to speak. So I think it would be. Very concerning if they were to change how this is apportioned. But I think at the moment it's quite um it works quite well. And I think we're an independent, a lot of the, the majority of newspapers in Norway are owned by essentially two large newspaper conglomerates, whereas um, we're independently owned by partially in fact by the largest um union in Norway. Um oh. owns about 30% of us, um, of or of our kind of stock, I guess. And then the rest is a kind of a kind of trust for the newspaper and then some kind of private um, individuals who have shares. So I guess in that way, we're also independent of, and I think that's almost more concerning, I think would be the kind of lack of diversity in, in ownership of newspapers in Norway, which I think then mm. translates into perhaps a lack of diversity within, within those kind of huge conglomerates. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would imagine so. I mean, that's something that, you know, if if you've read uh, if you've read much of of Chomsky, you know one of the things that he says that the way that uh, propaganda functions is not necessarily that you pay somebody and they change their position, mm. but you you bring people up who have the same opinions as you, right? And so if you're, yeah. you know, uh, uh, corporate media is you're just it's not that 
you're going to censor people who have these. You're just not going to hire people who are like anti-business, right? If you're a corporate yeah. media, you're not going to hire a socialist, right? It's just not even going to occur to you, um, much less, you know, to censor people who have that opinion on your network. You're just not going to bring them on your network, right? Yeah, and I think that's certainly the case. I mean, we've definitely run a lot of kind of labor stories, which it has been kind of shocking that no one that no one else has touched. Or, I mean, for example, just to talk about one one example of that. I mean, I'm on the international desk, which means, you know, I'm less involved in a kind of day-to-day -day Norwegian labor um, coverage. But I mean, some of my colleagues, for example, spent the last year reporting on um, the delivery driving industry in in Norway, which is rife with um well frankly just with people breaking the law with people um underpaying making writing illegal contracts um and um for these kind of subcontracting um kind of companies for large delivery um services um and here it's an industry which in norway because we're we're not in the eu but we're part of the kind of common um part of the schengen which means you can have free free travel mm -hmm. and free work and it's an industry in which you have a lot of immigrants working who don't don't speak Norwegian, very often don't know what the contracts they're um, signing onto are, what what it says, but also don't it might not know what labor, Norwegian labor laws look like, you know, quite reasonably. Um, so I think that means that that's been an industry which has been really a lot of a lot of shady business and a lot of. I mean, people getting underpaid, people having, you know, have, I mean, kind of the classic, you know, having to buy every single one of their equipment from the company, from exorbitant mm. prices, from uniforms to cars, having very long periods. If they leave the company, which they can't work for a rival company, um, which is illegal mm. in Norway, you do that. Um, and, and I think that's been very satisfying because it's also led, I mean, now there are discussions in parliament about how to regulate this industry. We've also seen some of the bigger um, kind of companies here actually hiring some of these workers on on permanent, on fixed contracts rather than on temporary contracts via kind of subcontracting um, companies. So I think that's been one area where I think a lot of Norwegians were frankly quite naive about what this industry looked mm -hmm. like. And I think that's really one of the big um, labor issues in Norway is these industries where there's very low unionization rates and a lot of workers who are neither neither familiar with the Norwegian labor laws or um, have necessarily the kind of language skills needed. So I think that's you know an area in which there is a lot of room for reaching out and you know creating you know tools and platforms and knowledge sharing to you know bring knowledge about you know how do you form a union what are the what are the regional right. labor law like yeah and and that's that's something that we're facing here in America on two fronts and and uh, both of those fronts in that story that you mentioned the the kind of uberfication of yeah. so many different trades you know turning real good paying union jobs in some cases like taxi drivers into intermittent low paying gig work yeah. like uber right i mean taxi drivers in new york city could make real money and medallions at yeah. one point were worth like a million dollars because that was a real you know that was a real job and yeah. now uh you know uber has come in and destroyed these people's livelihoods and and put people on you know just just total uh dead end low paying high paced work um and and then also on the other the exploiting the exploiting of immigrants we see that in in multiple ways here in this country as well um and and one of the ways that has been brought to the forefront forefront with this twitter stuff is the h1b visa 
um, because we saw when Elon put out his there was a there was an email that went out uh, telling folks, you know, that, oh, you've got to be like hardcore or whatever, long nights and, and long hours and many days and stuff. And and so if you don't reply that you're willing to be hardcore by 5 p.m., then you have to then you're you know, you're going to be fired. And uh, it was pointed out that a lot of Twitter's engineers are immigrants, right? Uh, they're, they're immigrants and they're here on H-1B visas and H-1B visas are tied to your employment and not even tied to you having a job, but tied to your employer. Your employer sponsors you as an H-1B visa immigrant. And so if you lose your employer, you're gone, you're deported. Yeah. And so, you know, they, the the immigrants that are here working for Twitter don't have the freedom to say, no, that's insane. I don't want, you know, I want a job and I'm willing to work, but I'm not willing to sleep in my damn office. Like, what, you know, um, I'm not willing to do that. They don't have the option to do that. Otherwise they'll be deported, right? And then in, in, uh, on the other side with undocumented immigrants, um, they don't have anything so formal as that as an employer sponsor, but certainly being undocumented, you can be deported uh, uh, legally anytime. And so anytime, you know, you get too uppity, your boss can report you to ICE and, and have you deported so that other folks there, you know, they don't get any, any ideas and, and they're not as familiar, obviously, with labor law in America, which ostensibly offers some protection, um, which is difficult to enforce, but, uh, you know, kind of like those folks over in Norway. So that's, you know, it's, it's interesting how even though and, and I want you to talk about some of the differences, like even though I think that there are a lot of ways that Norwegian labor has been able to make more gains and, and uh, secure their fortress, so to speak, more than American unions have, they're still having some similar problems over there. Yeah, definitely. Now, just on the kind of uberfication, I mean, one one really big win, I think, in Norway has been a couple of a couple of months ago, um, the one of the um, kind of equivalent kind of um, kind of food delivery, you know, kind of Uber apps um, actually unionized um, after um, several days of the kind of bicycle um, delivery drivers in, um, I guess, kind of Uber Eats equivalents um, actually right. um, unionized and suddenly got both the kind of pay rise, but also actually meant that the company would pay for their um, equipment, their bikes, and, you know, the kind of clothes which you need, which is a non-trivial expense when you're cycling around Oslo in the middle of the winter. Um, and after several weeks of hundreds of them being on strike um, and with kind of assistance from the kind of national um, kind of centralized union um, in, in Norway, they were they were able to unionize. So that was that was a big win and kind of the first of that kind of industry in Norway, which was able to to create a union and unsurprisingly, you know, led to much better working working conditions for for the for the cycle of the liberists. Yeah, no, no doubt. And so let's let's talk about some of the common working conditions in Norway and what the general labor scene is like. I know that you're not, you know, the labor reporter there. And, and but, you know, I think that you've got, you know, kind of a general idea of. Uh, of stuff over there. So just kind of tell us to the extent that you can what uh, what the labor scene is like over there, what working conditions are like and and how, how union membership works, stuff like that. Sure. Um, so I guess we're looking at a country with I think 50% of the workforce is, um, is unionized. Um, it's slightly lower than some other Scandinavian countries, but that's also because 
in say Sweden or Finland, um, they the unions are in charge of your unemployment check, which means mm. you kind of have a further incentive to to join a union. Um, whereas in Norway, that's um, organized by the state. Um, but I think it's I think that makes it the highest the country with the highest percentage of unionization, which doesn't have um, unemployment checks organized by your union, um, I believe. Um, and then I think one massive difference is that um, there's very there's a lot of sectoral bargaining, a lot of sectoral agreements. Um, so, for example, I'm in the kind of Norwegian Union of Journalists, and every every four years they meet with um, the kind of the kind of Norwegian journalists, um, the kind of companies, an association of the companies, and then kind of create a um, a standard across the whole sector. Um, which will then be a kind of baseline for all for all newspapers to follow. Um, and then in the local um, newspapers, there will then also be um, discussions for any further changes or specific um, specific needs or further, you know, greater benefits on top of that baseline. But I think that that means that there are much, it's much more common to have I guess sector-wide strikes. I mean, it's less common to have, for example, I mean, when I met you down in um, in Brookwood um, at the UWA, UMWA strikes um, there, you know, they've been, you know, there's one, one company's workers on strike. Whereas, I mean, in Norway, it's much more common for a whole sector to go to go out on strike because you have a kind of norm of of sectoral, big sectoral agreements. And I think Another big difference is that there's the unions are mostly organized into essentially two very large organizations, which are kind of um, associations of different unions for different sectors, which means that there's a lot of a lot of collaboration. For example, I mean, my union is part of LU, which is basically the Lance organization. It's kind of the or it's called like kind of the national union um, is kind of what it translates to, which then involves everyone from journalists to um, I think the kind of one coal mining workers are in there, but also, I mean, hospital workers, some people who work in, are employed by the government, um, which means that if one sector goes on strike, it's also not uncommon for the national union to then pull out people in other sectors as well. Um, so I remember I was working um working in a school at one point um, a couple of years ago and then just as like an assistant teacher and then I was pulled out on strike because the um, hospital um, the nurses were um, were going on strike and I think that means that you can have I mean I know that's illegal in this country if I'm if I'm not mm. mistaken and I think right. that's something which gives a lot of you know means you can really shut down a lot if if need right. be these um, if and when these kind of national level um, sectoral bargaining um, fails. Right, right. I, and I think that is a, uh, you know, there's a reason that uh, bosses wanted to get that in the law as soon as possible. Like <laughs> immediately after the NLRA passed the National Labor Relations Act, that was one of the things that they were they were gunning for to put that in the Taft-Hartley bill that, that passed a few years later was a ban on secondary strikes. Because if you can start to mm. shut down entire industries, affect other bosses, you know, that... Uh, that puts a lot of power in the workers' hands, or that right. that you know recognizes the power that is in their hands, rather than trying to take it away from them. Right? Yeah. Well, I think and so, two other two other differences I'd just like to highlight quickly, if that's all right, is mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. both. Um, sorry, I just completely lost my train of thought here, real quick. But let me see if this comes back to me. 
Two other differences between U.S. and the Norwegian yeah, one, labor scene. One is here. One is that you're actually you're not allowed to hire um, replacement workers. This was kind mm -hmm. of a crazy thing to me um, when I was in Brookwood because you know we went up to you know we marched along blocked the road up to one of the mines um, when I was there with you and then um, you know there were just you know kind of scabs and other workers you know just keeping the mine going, admittedly at a lower capacity, um, but that's. You can't do that in Norway. You know, if, if the mm -hmm. workers go on strike, you, you aren't allowed to have your employees fulfill their tasks. Um, mm. In some cases, like bosses will do that. Like, for example, in the hotel industry, it's quite common that if the hotel workers go on strike, in practice, that means that the you know people running the hotel will attempt to do the kind of clean, you know, do the kind of cleaning work and to kind of keep things taking over. But in theory, you're neither allowed to hire nor have people fulfill fulfill those tasks while the strike is ongoing, which I think means you know you can't have the type of situation which you know is tragically unfolding in in Brookwood, in which you know the mines mm. are still open despite you know six hundred days of or you know almost six hundred days of of an ongoing strike. Uh, David in the chat was wondering uh, it, about if sectoral bargaining in Norway creates complacency among workers and less militancy. And I think from, from our conversations on and off the air, it, w it would seem like no. But what is your thought about the effect that sectoral bargaining has on, on the rank and file? Mm. I, think, I think yes, in some ways. Like, I think, you know, when I come to the U.S., I'm always struck by the kind of militancy among kind of grassroots um, organizers and labor movements in the US. And I think in to some extent in Norway, I think to some extent in fact of that a lot of that happening kind of at a kind of top, um, you know, a kind of top down approach, um, mm. which I think does mean in a lot of workplaces, um, people will be perhaps less active if they're not, you know, they'll be a union member perhaps, but not um, perhaps that's active and that's aware, following that closely, kind of minor violations of, of labor law, for example. But I think also more broadly, I think having, there's a sense in Norway, I think, across the board that um, that labor relations are pretty good, you know, that we have a country which where a lot is going right. And I think that creates a kind of complacency in which you know, which I think a lot of our readers, for example, were shocked at the kind of working conditions among, um, say, delivery van drivers. You know, I think there is this definitely complacency about um, a sense that a lot has been achieved, which I think makes it harder to motivate people to to keep on fighting across right. across the board. Well, let's talk. Let's shift gears to your U.S. reporting. You said mm -hmm. you're uh, on the foreign desk over at, at Kloskampen and. Uh, you are in the U.S. right now. Uh, you've been in the U.S. for a couple of weeks, and I think you'll be here for another. So how, um, you know, wh what what are the things that you've been reporting on? And uh, is there anything that, you know, what, what have you been surprised by or had, you know, assumptions confirmed by? You know, just just talk to us about your, your general impression of, of what's going on here, some of the stories that you've been reporting on. Sure. So... I guess I came here a couple, uh, I mean, say a week before the midterms, and I had a week kind of doing um, doing a bit of kind of midterm stuff. I wrote a piece on on the Fetterman campaign up in Pennsylvania. Um, 
and one piece kind of generally about um, progressive, the state of progressive politics um, among, I guess, at a kind of congressional level um, going into the midterms. And then came down to Alabama, where I had the one piece on where I met you um, writing on the the ongoing strike um, at U UMWA, um, which I think was both a piece which I think really resonated with readers. I got a lot of, I think it came out yesterday, and I think I got a lot of a lot of emails, a lot of people um, really, you know, struck and I mean surprised both at both at the nature of the strike, but also the things which are going on in the background, you know, like them getting at one point, you know, a $13.3 million fine, you know, even if it's reduced, the fact that at one point it seemed plausible that they would have to pay for, you know, the company's lost profits. I mean, that just seems batshit crazy to, mm -hmm. to me and to some of our readers, you know, like even the fact that that was plausible, even if thankfully, you know, that didn't happen or, you know, being banned from from picketing for from picket lines for a couple of months. I mean, I think so I think that was a story which I think I mean, it also, you know, resonates with our readers who are lots of, um, you know, I think labor issues is a kind of bread and bread and butter issues for us. Um, mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I went, I was because I also wrote a P in Alabama, one piece on the attempt at creating or the ongoing Supreme Court case on um, gerrymandering. Um, in, I guess trying to create a second majority black um, district. Um, right. And which, and I guess kind of future of the Civil Rights Act. And then went to DC and did a little bit of, I guess, you know, I guess Trump's presidential nomination is kind of. You know, kind of sucks a lot of the air out of the room. I think when it comes to <laughs> yeah. how Nor how Norway view views the U.S. I mean, I think there's kind of a a kind of fascination with that side of America and kind of what it's kind of hard hard to understand. I think coming coming mm. from Norway, right, right. That's hard to come in, hard to understand for us too, and we're living through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, you know, Matthias, is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, uh, you know, that you wanted to share, you wanted to talk to us, uh, uh, talk about or, or even ask us about? Mm -hmm. One thing, actually, that I would be interested or because I was just so shocked by this um, NLRB decision to fine UMWA, the $13.3 million, including the lost profits. And I never really mm -hmm. got, is that something which you can legally be fined for in this country, like for the fact that you're on strike and your company as a result of that is of course making less money. Cause that just seems like it would be kind of crippling for, yes. any, you know. Jacob, you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that it is not yet a practice. Mm -hmm. And mm. the way I interpreted this was that warrior Matt was seeing how far they could push the boundary. My understanding is that there are some court cases, one yeah. potentially even a Supreme Court case, that's going to be along the same lines and it's going to possibly have some lasting impact on whether or not this becomes a standard practice in any strikes because you're right. It, I mean, the whole point of the strike is <laughs> to hit at the profits, right? right. So yeah. if if you have to then pay back the damage that you do. It, yeah, I mean, this is like you just crippled the whole point. Yeah. yeah. Seems... Right. I mean, at that point, your legal right to strike has Pardon been such me. diminished yeah. to right. almost be 
a right only on paper. Right. Yeah. And the, you know, it even so my understanding my understanding of the law is definitely that that just outright you know charging you for for lost profits is not legal, but there are potential ways to get you to cover some of that, which is what Warrior Met was trying to do, and what um, this other company out of Washington is trying to do. That that I think you alluded to, Adam, is headed for the Supreme Court. And so, what Warrior Met was trying to do, it was I think that they were alleging that, or, or they were trying to get them to cover lost profit that they would say was not derivative of their withholding their labor, which is legal and federally protected, but was derivative of their um, unlawful actions like, you know, uh, property destruction or, um, or blocking scabs from entering the mine, things right. like that. Yeah. And so I think that that's what they would say. And I don't think that, that it's a practice even to, to, to find unions for lost profits in those situations. Um, but yeah. Warrior Met was trying that, and the other situation where, where bosses are trying that is this case with cement truck drivers where the cement truck drivers notified their bosses that they were going on strike at this time, and they did. Uh, they went on strike at this time, and there were cement trucks that had cement in them still churning, and the cement dried and messed up the trucks, and so that's a lot of damage there. And they were trying. They're trying to, you know, um, get them to pay those pay those damages and and the workers are like well you know we told you so you right. you could have fixed it if you had wanted to but you didn't and, yeah. and so now and and so uh you know mm. uh, i'm very very worried about that case in front of this supreme court with the 6-3 conservative yeah. supermajority. so uh you know i don't know ask me in a year and right uh, you know <laughs> the answer well, may be different but as yeah, yeah but as of right now no uh you can't uh unions don't have to pay for lost profits uh, right now, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely was was a shocking uh, proposal that it. Mm. And I agree with you, like the fact that it even was was taken seriously and not just mm -hmm. immediately laughed out of the room, is mm. is a red flag. That's not the good kind of red flag. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's it's not not promising for the future. And we have a judiciary that is so dominated by uh, the business class and by right wing ideologues that um, it is is not looking good on the legal yeah. front. And that's why I think the organizing that we've seen and the grassroots energy through the organizing has been uh, really a, a little bit of hope uh, mm. because the legal framework is so against us as working yeah. class people. And because the legal framework is even under threat, as bad as it is, mm. it, it's likely to get worse. Um, at least seeing some people power and seeing that grassroots organizing has given some of us hope that, you know, we, we can turn things around and we can rebuild labor in spite of the law and the judges. Uh, mm. Mateus, one thing I wanted to ask before we let you go, yeah. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in the cultural aspects. And I know mm. you haven't spent a ton of time over here, but you've gotten enough to at least have some sense of our culture versus yours. And I'm interested the comparison and contrast between Norway and America when it comes to consumerism yeah. and our conceptions of class. 
especially just the concept of working class, who defines themselves as working class, who sees themselves as working class. Uh, so those were two areas of the culture, the consumerism part and, and the conception of class. I was interested if you've gotten any, you know, if you have any observations on that. Hmm. Um, I guess on, on class, I think one... And kind of class identity. I mean, I think Norway certainly has a very, both has a pretty proud working class um, of, you know, the people who kind of take the kind of legacies of the trade union. I mean, the reason we have strong labor laws, you know, is because of the battles of, you know, of unions in the past. Right. I think it's, you know, it's not like that came out of nowhere. You know, I think that's, um, you know, I mean, I think every big gain in the in Norwegian labor laws is because of, you know, very strong fights of of the labor unions and the fact that they've been powerful enough that they've been able to, you know, really be a driving force in national level politics um, and kind of they're historically and kind of weakening kind of unfortunately the ties between the labor party and the labor movement. But historically, those have been extremely strong, but have kind of weakened as the Labour Party, I guess, taken a kind of neoliberal turn that it's maybe still stuck in. But um, but I think um, as far as consumerism goes, I mean, I think this is maybe a slightly different way of going at this, but I think there are a lot of things, perhaps, perhaps this isn't about consumers, perhaps I'm just answering <laughs> answering the question which I'm thinking of rather than the question you asked. And that's totally like, fine. <laughs> apologize for that. But one thing I've been struck by is just having the welfare state in Norway, or I think is really important for creating, um, I guess, sufficient conditions which allow for workers' power. And here I'm thinking especially about healthcare. Right. I mean, in Norway, right. you have the same healthcare if you're, if you have a job, if you're on strike, if you're unemployed, you know, it's covered by the state no matter what. And talking to, you know, a lot of the, the miners who are on strike, I mean, they, that's a huge issue for them. You know, mm -hmm. they need to find jobs which will hopefully give, and, you know, it's hard to find jobs which have equivalent healthcare. And that's like, uh, you know, makes it much harder to go on strike, makes it much harder to leave your job. You know, you're kind of stuck in a lot of ways, which, um, you know, with really high expenses, if, you, if you're not doing that. And I think that's one area which I think that kind of, the overlap between progressive politics and labor union and labor movements is kind of so so fundamentally clear that you can you, know, you you kind of need that to be able to you know you need to be able to take care of your health you need to be able to you know get medicine and i think that's something which you know is kind of a necessary condition for the norwegian labor movements yeah absolutely and i think that is a, is a great illustration on how the welfare state um mm. It provides a foundation. It provides breathing room. Uh, that's, you know, it's a piece of leverage that in Norway is not currently being used against the workers in Norway, right? Because, as you said, whether they're unemployed or on strike, they have health care. And here, that is a weapon that the employer class can wield against us. Um, and it's something that I think changes the power dynamics when you know to leave a job or to strike a job is to poss possibly miss out on uh, medicine, 
life-saving treatments, uh, dealing with injuries. Uh, a lot of those miners, of course, have, have numerous injuries of, of various sorts, from black lung to, you know, knees that are busted up and bad backs. And that's no light matter to, to go yeah. without health care. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's, that. That is a very important point, I think, to illustrate the differences in because workers are entering the negotiation from a different point, a, a different position, have, knowing that healthcare is taken care of, knowing that there are certain elements of the welfare state that are going to be there, win, lose, or draw, uh, provides a sense of security for a family mm -hmm. that we simply don't have. And I think right. that's why fear is such a, a major factor in, uh, in the organizing that we're doing in the, in the United States is dealing with the fear that's very real and very, you know, grounded in, in reality. Yep, yep. Absolutely. Mateus, foreign affairs reporter for Klaus Kampen. Uh, do y'all have a, do y'all have like an English version of uh, of the paper online or, or anything like that, or is it all in Norwegian? Unfortunately, not. Unfortunately, not. I think Google Translate is not bad with Norwegian, okay. but we also okay. we also hit you up with a pretty hard uh, paywall. Um, <laughs> so can, I can think, you send uh, us a print version? Maybe I do. Y'all do print? I like, send, still, yeah, yeah. I can. If you send me an address, I can get um, the newspaper to send uh, send the version, a copy over. Yeah, I would love to see. I would love to see the copy where you write. Where, if you if you have a print copy where you're writing anything about Rookwood, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to see that. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I can. Uh, yeah, if you just email me or message me the an address. All right, Mateus. I think that's fantastic, and I really, really want to just express my appreciation to you uh, as a journalist who's not from Alabama, not from the United States, but the fact that you um, are interested in our labor struggles and that you are covering what's happening with our working class here, it means a lot. Yep. Well, I think there really is, and this is some maybe a good note to end on, a lot of a lot of admiration and a lot of attention being paid to the American um, labor movements. I think in part because you know, you guys are fighting under really difficult conditions. You know, it's not it's not easy, but there is, you know, there is energy, there is momentum, or so it seems, at least from Norway mm -hmm. in in the labor movements. I mean, things like um, the kind of obviously things like the Amazon um, Union. You know, that's gotten a lot of attention in Norway. I think there is a kind of a lot of solidarity and a lot of people, um, you know, rooting for you guys and kind of following following the American labor politics. I think more more closely than one might expect. Fantastic. Right. Sounds great. Mateus, appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time this morning. Let's keep in touch. All right. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure. All right. Thank we'll you. Talk later. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Yeah, folks. And I, I think that uh, that's going to be where we wrap up. Sounds good. Sound good to you, Adam? Yeah, I think so. Ending on a note of international solidarity. Yeah. Uh, I can dig it. And yeah, I think that's just, it's really cool to think about. Uh, you know, some folks in Norway reading coverage of the minor strike in Brookwood, Alabama. And we've got folks, some of our neighbors, haven't even read about the Brookwood strike. Know, yeah. <laughs> you know, some, so some Democratic Party activists, according to David. I don't know who it was, and I don't, I don't really want to know. I don't guess, David. Don't tell me. But, David, did you know that, that uh, Adam, that David said that there was a Democratic Party activist that was asking him how, like, labor could support the Democrats or vice versa. And he said something about, well, you know, y'all could support the miners in Brookwood or something like that. And they were like, oh, no, I didn't even know that was happening. 
it's like what yeah oh god not surprised a lot of folks are not plugged in like they should be uh i mean we're biased we're we're labor first people but y'all the economy's pretty pretty big deal yeah <laughs> in your life and without workers there is no economy so it's worth, it's worth paying attention to, and I want to thank everyone who's tuned in today and, and spent some time with us. Your time is valuable, and we appreciate that. We respect that, and uh, really appreciate all the folks who've been chatting, um, your participation. It, it makes the day go by better. Uh, it gives us something to feed off of, and, and your criticisms and suggestions and feedback is all very welcome and helpful. You know, we're doing this because we believe that Southern working class people deserve our own independent media. So if you if you support that project, you know, do whatever you can to help us out, whether it's continuing to chat and share our stuff on social media or chip in a couple of bucks like some folks did today. It really means a lot. And yep. I hope everyone has a fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, shout out to all the pilots and flight attendants and other airline workers who are organizing and and fighting for fair contracts or in the case of delta flight attendants fighting to get their union yeah so shout out to them and solidarity to them as they go through a very difficult holiday week and uh, look forward to speaking to everybody next week see you then